Welcome to Dragon's Eye Podcast, where we reassert alchemical balance by delving into profound and esoteric subjects from an all-encompassing perspective, such as ancient myths, arcane magics, cryptids, and ancient astronaut theory, and many other related topics. I'm your host, Shaman Gaia, a spiritual life coach and intuitive healer. I'm joined by my co-host, Morphia, an investigative journalist, scholar, herbalist, and fellow shamanic practitioner. So step into the portal, the dragon's eye, and join us on a rite of passage that will rekindle your wonder and re-inspire you to ever-renewing heights. Welcome to our inaugural episode of Dragon's Eye Podcast. This episode will shed light on the shared symbolism, mystical qualities, and the spiritual significance of dragon beings across various cultures. Hello everyone. I'm very excited to have you all with us today. We're in the studio. We're recording our inaugural episode for Dragon's Eye Podcast. How are you feeling about all of this, Morphia? I seem to have a bit of a temperature and some gas. No, actually, seriously, no. <laughs> I'm feeling really good about it. I like the idea of starting the podcast, especially with the subjects that we have in store. I think that's going to be very valuable and offer a lot of really exciting information for people to sink their teeth into. I have mixed feelings, really, because I've done some podcasting before, and it's always a good time, but I've never done a podcast with a co-host, so that's new. It's a new feeling, sharing the spotlight, so to speak. So we've established a little bit, like we're both feeling kind of excited. It's an intrepid endeavor. How nice. Yeah, you're welcome. I thought if I threw some big words in there that we could match, match energies. What is your vision of how this will unfold? Because I have no idea. So what do you think? Well, like many other things in my life, I have super grand visions. That's true. And then the reality seems to be a little more deflating. But no, seriously, this is really interesting to me. And I like the subject matter. And I think that a lot of people talk about these types of things, but I feel that we have more to offer and that we are pushing it from a lot of different angles. And we're including a lot of different things that I feel are often overlooked in these discussions. So um, I feel that my vision for it is that it's going to be all inclusive and it's going to be very detailed and it's going to have a lot of sustenance more so like i said than the average conversation about these subjects so i'm excited about that and just to add on to that because you so often steal the words right out of my mouth one thing that i think would be part of my vision for the podcast as well is to really get into like you said the holistic thing a lot of these podcasts and you said this too really just touch on the subject and then they end it there and you'll hear with a soulful practice segment that we really want you to get a sense that we're sharing information and then we're giving you ways to use it in your regular life so that's one thing that I really want to get done with this. And I think we can do it between the two of us. Yes, talking about these ancient cultures, ancient high technology, and 
ancient astronaut theory, uh, ETs, uh, things of that matter, and then also tying in the practices that people have done all this time and in the ancient past and people that have been directly associated with some of these stories and some of these creation myths and showing how those things apply to even today and to people's lives and how they can practice those things and that's very exciting to me also okay last question what is one challenge that you did not expect in this process I did not expect to come face to face with the Lord of Darkness. Honestly, me either. That was a pleasant surprise, but well, unexpected. Well, no, actually, that was just our cat, so... <laughs> I know I actually have um, expected most of what we've encountered so far. I'm sure there will be something eventually that will pop up out of the blue that I didn't expect, but so far, um, everything has fallen in line, so... Mm-hmm. One thing I did not expect was the insane amount of kisses that you need to get through <laughs> a recording session and how many times we had to try to re-record parts because something was going on with the, with the, yeah. the tech. Oh my gosh. Yeah. If, if you all knew, and I'll just end the sentence there, if you all knew. Well, fortunately, I have a background in being a producer and uh, I was a musician before that and uh, I've handled a lot of the side so it didn't take long it was a little bumpy at first but yeah we got through it so. yeah and i believed in you because you taught me everything that i knew about podcast editing when i was doing my solo podcasts so that's why you are in charge of that and not me <laughs> thank you you're welcome before we start the discussion about dragons let's explore our soulful practice of the week the Soulful Practice of the Week is a segment that we created on the podcast to help you deepen your practice. It's an opportunity to bring our conversation full circle and to provide you with holistic tips and tools to function. This week, our practice is mantra. Mantra is a practice that many people find easy to connect with, and it involves choosing a short word or phrase to help us focus, feel calm, and to change our behavior. Morphia, what do you think about this practice of mantra, and do you have any that you use on a regular basis? I think this practice is valuable, and yes, I do have mantras that I use. It depends on the context of the situation. Sometimes I like to use mantras that are a little comedic, that break up the monotony for the day, whatever the situation is, and things like mani 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 shwadi, you know, strange sounding iterations and things like that. And sometimes if I'm in a more serious situation, I like those types of mantras, and they range everything from ancient mantras that come from Hindu or even some Egyptian things or mantras that you can create yourself. So yeah, I do practice that. I love that. I feel like the reason that mantra is so accessible is because you don't need any equipment. And one way that I think is very effective in choosing a mantra is find a quote. So the most recent mantra that I've been using for myself that I actually started using when we decided to create a podcast was from the Tao Te Ching, the 71st chapter. And this is the 1996 Edward Shaw translation. And the first two lines are, not knowing is true knowledge. Presuming to know is a disease. And I want to get your thoughts on that sentence. I'll say it again so you can hear it. Not knowing is true knowledge. Presuming to know is a disease. What do you think? That's excellent. 
I love that quote, and I agree completely. All too often in today's society, people are programmed to give an immediate response, and whether they have the answer or whether they don't, they immediately fire back with some sort of unauthentic reply, and it's usually not a solution, and it can be more of a hindrance than anything not just to the situation, but for the people that are practicing that sort of instant reply. I know in this society, people are programmed to, you know, you have to get ahead, you have to get the almighty dollar. And so let's just be quick about it, snap judgments and things like that, snap replies, and that is just overall toxic. So there's nothing wrong with saying, I don't know, and telling other people that, telling yourself that, acknowledging that you're not going to know all the answers and that you need to be comfortable with that and it is more down to earth and it keeps you more in touch with natural cycles yeah and one of the things just to add to what you're saying one of the things that i have found with myself is there's a bit of shame that we've been programmed to feel when we have to say i don't know but really moving out of that and using that phrase as the quote says true knowledge especially with the right people it garners a little bit more respect you know i work with children and they're always asking me questions and sometimes i don't know the answer And I'll say, I don't know. And they're kind of surprised when I say I don't know, because they're used to adults being like, well, I know everything. And kind of showing them that it's okay to not always have the answer and thinking, well, you know, I don't know, but I'm curious about what the answer is. And let's find out together. So let's get into our topic this week, dragons. Almost all global cultures have venerated the dragon in epic and enduring forms of expression such as pyramids, engravings, temples, and writings as a creator of humans and human civilization. Throughout Asia, there are ancient creation stories of dragon beings coming from the skies. Likewise, throughout India, Indonesia, ancient Greece, Africa, Europe, and even the Americas, ancient stories abound of dragon beings descending from the sky and instructing humanity. That's amazing because when you think of how history is taught it's very isolated and oftentimes the people who tell these stories about what happened seem to just input their own interpretations on it and make it seem like oh well the chinese were the only people who were seeing dragons and oh but that's not what was happening over here and so it strips all these cultures of the connections especially when it comes to beings like this Exactly, yes. And there is a larger picture, there is a connection, because all of these cultures were seeing very similar things, very similar beings, and when you start to look at them with this theory of a connected universe, with this uh, perspective, then you can see a much larger picture. Yeah. One of the things that I remember learning in art history is that ancient civilizations created art, not for art's sake, but to record what was actually happening. So when we take that into consideration and we see like petroglyphs or these elaborate, you know, carvings and drawings, we have to understand that, no, this wasn't art for art's sake. That came later. People were drawing and sculpting and carving what they were actually seeing if we're going to follow that model because we can't just pick and choose when that applies. Right. When the Osirian myth began in Egypt, the original name given to the god Osiris was Asar, literally meaning the Asian. We can corroborate this with the Asian dragon myths. 
The intention is to connect the dots between all these different dragon gods. In most cultures, the dragon represents the epitome of a powerful but also very noble entity. Many of the ancient myths and creation accounts we possess detail the dragon beings as the founders of life on this planet, including the creation of humans. Many of the stories also describe these beings interacting with humans and intermittently bringing them knowledge and objects of power. Yeah, and when you think of that and you hear about civilizations like the Chinese who call themselves the children of the dragon, you understand that it goes deeper than just flying over and doing maybe some kind of cute fireworks show. These beings were directly interfacing or interacting with the people and giving them valuable things. Correct, yes. Let's talk about some of the myths that are around some of these beings. Sure. The dragons that descended from the skies of planet Earth had lineages of their own and, after creating the human race, then taught them how to conduct their own human lineages and structure their societies. The two species were integral to one another. The Enuma Elish, or Eilish as it's sometimes pronounced, one of the oldest creation codices on the planet, describes how these beings created humans and for varying reasons. The details in the Enuma Elish vary drastically from the highly edited church and state-sponsored, quote, official versions. In the Enuma Elish, you get an extremely different and much more detailed account of the players and the events. According to the Enuma Elish, one of the primary purposes for the creation of humans was to relieve them of the burden of mining gold and other minerals from the earth. But it has also been suggested that the creation of the human species was simply an ongoing permutation of the widespread experimentation in the solar system being conducted at that time by these beings and their envoys. That reminds me of that show that we've been binge-watching. Uh, raised by wolves the way how uh, the android especially mother is talking about my role and that my programming has been primarily to make sure that human beings flourish but then all this shit goes down and the children are dying and (laughs) there's like hysteria in the streets so i wonder what that looked like back then what do you think do you think it was similar yeah anything's possible um i think that sometimes Art imitates life, imitating art, and vice versa. You know, life imitates art, imitating life, and etc. So, yeah, anything's possible. It kind of reminds me of those stories from uh, even like the Epic of Gilgamesh and some of these other accounts of ancient creation myths. And it's like these these dragon gods, these beings who were supposed to be better than everyone else, were like sleeping with human women. And they were like, yeah, yeah. I like this. <laughs> Yeah, you know, wreaking all sorts of havoc. And then, you know, of course, the humans get blamed for less things thereafter. And it's like, uh, you know, talk about the pot calling the kettle black. You know, it's a little hypocritical. Yeah. Um, it's like when parents, um, when when a child throws a fit in a store and the parent is like, I don't know where they got this behavior yeah. from. And it's like, what are you talking about? Yeah, right. <laughs> they learned it from you. Or what is their obsession with taking baths? Yeah, funny, you mentioned that. You mean Enlil? You were talking about Enlil? Yeah, he was holding on to, was it the Tablets of Destiny? And yeah, the May Tablets, the Tablets of Destiny, yes. And went to take a bath and just left them, and they got stolen, and he got mad. Like, what? Yeah, um, there were a lot of people taking baths back then that got things stolen from them. They seemed to have a really high inclination to cleanliness over holding on to their most important belongings. <laughs> 
Yeah. So I'm wondering now, retrospectively, like what was in that water? Like, was it a hot spring or was it yeah. like, you know, how when you when you're a reptile handler, you have to mist them ever so often or else they dry out and yeah, and yeah. start flaking? Yeah, maybe, maybe. Can you imagine they're having some very important meeting in their very important clothes and they're like, time for a bath break. Yeah, it's, got- like, it's like a, a company spa. Yes. Yeah, they got the cucumbers on their eyelids and stuff. And there's a guy, a human, one of the humans they created with a spray bottle nearby. My liege, do you need your minutely misting? Right. That yeah. would be hilarious. Yeah. In Shanxi province, China, they conduct honorary celebrations at the mausoleum of the Yellow Emperor. Several thousands of people gather to watch the traditional dragon dance at the Qingming Festival. The Dragon Dance is an ancient ceremony that has been held for thousands of years. It represents a veneration of the dragon beings coming from the sky to earth to not only create human beings but also to teach humans the ways of civilization. The celebration is paramount to the Chinese culture as evidenced by the many thousands of years they have held it. Chinese children are taught about this custom from a very young age. Ancient China was a place where humans lived alongside the divine gods whom they knew very well to be dragons races. China is replete with these ancient stories that specify these beings were coming to earth in many cases on the backs of dragons. This was one of the reasons the dragon became revered as a sacred symbol by the Chinese. The Yellow Emperor, also known as Huangdi, is credited for founding Chinese civilization nearly 5,000 years ago. He's credited with numerous inventions that define Chinese civilization, from astronomical sciences to animal domestication to the calendar. Some accounts refer to a magical cauldron Huangdi crafted, from which came a dragon. Many Chinese people today still say they are the descendants of the Yellow Emperor, or put another way, the descendants of the dragon and the dragon lineages. That's really interesting. And, you know, when I was looking up some stuff about Wang Di, I saw that he was like the creator of Chinese medicine. And that's something that yeah. we use today. We've both benefited from that system. And yes. it's very comprehensive. It's not woo-woo, whatever people say, witch doctory, snake, snake oil. Yeah, exactly. It was technically the first medicine. So, you know, and uh, China still today has a large investment in that. Yeah, and it doesn't make sense that these accounts of accepted accounts of history, especially here in the West, talk about how, you know, people just stumbled upon this. That does not make sense. Something as intricate as being able to diagnose whatever illness by looking at different parts of the body externally and asking questions that can't just be from people doing trial and error finding out. The first humans were believed to have been created by an ancient goddess named Niqua, who was herself part dragon and part mortal. The dragon is also part of the Chinese zodiac, a form of calendar that dates back to 2500 BC. There's an animal assigned to each year. Of all these animals, all but the dragon is encountered today, suggesting that when the zodiac was created, the Chinese believed that the dragon actually existed. It is part of Chinese belief and myth that the Yellow Emperor flew up into the sky and went to the pole star, where he lives forever. Immortality is another aspect that is often associated with the dragon beings of the ancient creation codices from everywhere on planet Earth. Sometimes I wonder, how is it that they're living forever? Do you think they've got some kind of magical living forever, like, bracelet? 
or some kind of potion? It's possible, though. I think it's likely they have the potions. You know, in Taoism, it is often talked about the herbal elixirs and extracts that we are familiar with today. Those play a very large part in Taoism, and of course, the Taoists refer to the dragon sciences and the dragons quite often, similar to the Buddhists, only probably more. So I think it has a lot to do with that type of herbalism, although I do feel that they were mimicking in those ancient times what they were seeing from these dragon beings, and they probably even understood to a certain degree that these dragon beings were genetically amazing compared to what we are as human beings, probably much more resilient, you know, um, yeah. and their lifespans probably seemed like immortality to them, even though they may not have even lived forever, but compared to what a human being is, uh, how long a human being lives, I'm sure it seemed like they were living forever. Yeah, and that would make sense that they would have that with that, um, that story about Wang Di. Did you know that one of the other accounts said that a dragon flew down and he got on its back and it took him there yeah but another version said that he himself turned into a like a half man half dragon hybrid type of being and flew away yes i mean both might he maybe he flew away as a dragon yeah. one time and maybe he got on one well there are many references of that type of shape-shifting or turning into the dragon with many of those historical figures actual historical figures especially in the asian creation stories and Huang di was one of them as well as lao Tzu, the so-called founder of taoism lao Tzu is mentioned quite a few times to have actually been a dragon himself by a few different people and and the Buddha was allegedly even quoted as attributing to Lao Tzu the dragon being as well, so... Yeah, okay. That's cool. I wonder if we've met, like, a dragon being and just not known that they were... <laughs> that would be really interesting because for all intents and purposes, these beings at that time, it was advantageous for them to be showing themselves to humans, but with all the dragon slaying... <laughs> Yeah. I would probably be, like, a little selective. <laughs> yeah, the Western traditions seem to be a lot more hostile to the dragon as an entity. You know, even some of the Asian stories are filled with dragons that are not totally benevolent to humanity, even though the Asian stories that abound about dragons, other dragons are more so benevolent towards humans, but there are some mentions of the more hostile types of dragons. Ancient astronaut theorists proposed that the dragon image was assigned to these types of historical personages simply because of the fiery flying ships in which they came to and departed from Earth. These researchers also liken the ancient myths about water and sky dragons to the modern-day sightings of transdimensional crafts seen in the sky and diving into and coming from the oceans and lakes. However, there are plenty of ancient creation stories which contain numerous different references to specific beings who physically looked reptilian, having scales, horns, and other dragon-like features, and whom possessed mastery over gravity, invisibility, shape-shifting, and transdimensional capabilities which were explicitly attributed to their dragon genetics. Some sources that reference this include the Tabulus Smaragdina, also known as the Emerald Tablets of Thoth, the Enuma Elish, and the Haggadah, to name only a few. Our perspective, based on the ancient and present accounts of ET interactions as well as detailed descriptions in ancient myth, is that both physical dragon beings and their spacecrafts were seen and interacted with, and that it was not just one or the other. Both were physical realities occurring everywhere on this planet.
Yeah, and that goes back to what I was saying and what we were commenting on earlier in the episode where we were saying about art for art's sake, why couldn't it have been both? The way that, again, the way that history has been presented in this very first this happened and then this happened and the two things couldn't overlap because that doesn't make sense. However, the way that we live history is with these coinciding and almost like concentric circles things happening all the time and many things happening all at once so it it wasn't necessarily that oh we see these crafts and then oh well maybe they're dragons it's like you can see crafts and dragons in the sky at the same time yeah exactly another extremely interesting story pertaining to the dragon beings is the story about the droba stones i'm sure you've probably heard about it Mm -hmm, yeah the Drupa Stones were found in China in a cave in the Bayankara Ula Mountains in the 1930s. Uh, they detail yet another story of dragon-like beings. When archaeologists finally deciphered the writing on the stone disks, they were amazed to learn of E.T. beings called Dropas, and how they had come down from the stars and crash-landed on Earth. The stones were found in these caves along with small humanoid-looking corpses with strange otherworldly features and being much smaller in size than the average height of an adult human. One of the passages reads, quote, The Dropa came down out of the skies in gliders. Our men, women, and children hid in the caves ten times before sunrise. When at last they understood the sign language of the Dropas, they realized that the newcomers had peaceful intentions. End quote. The Dropas were unable to rebuild their spacecraft from available materials on this planet and were unable to receive help from their home planet, which caused them to be stranded here on Earth. Additional information, which adds even more credence to the Drupa Stones being authentic relics, is that after the initial research, the stones mysteriously disappeared, similarly to so many of the other ET-related objects throughout history which find their way into official hands. Even more mysteriously, in 1974, photographs began to surface of two alleged Dropa Stones on display at the Anpo Museum in Xi'an City, China. Throughout the 60s and 70s, many cultural relics were actively destroyed. It is speculated that this is how the two Dropa Stones from the original 700 made their way to the Bon Po Museum. It was later discovered upon thorough investigation that a female manager of the museum had disappeared with the two Dropa Stones in question. They vanished without a trace. In the same area in China, there is the Qinghai Lake, which is associated with the dragon god or dragon king of the West Sea. There were many of these so-called dragon kings. Many have speculated that the dragons and the dropas are one and the same, and the names are definitely similar. Also in China, some Buddhist temples are adorned with dragon god sculptures, and related stories of their origins and purpose have been told for thousands of years. Yeah, and for those of you who have not seen the Dropa Stones, can you describe a little bit what they look like? They're circular, right? Uh, the Dropa Stones are actually circular, and they kind of resemble in size. They are akin to what we would think of as a vinyl record. They're yeah. probably a little smaller, but close to that size. So they definitely look like some sort of ancient tech. Yeah, they're pretty interesting. And then on the inside rim of all these stones, they have this engraving with these really tiny, what look like similar to a cuneiform writing. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and so yeah. that's what they were working on with the translations. Yeah. You know, this story reminds me a little bit of my favorite children's cartoon, Avatar, The Last Airbender, yeah. when Aang, and in the first, not the first, the first iteration of that, when Aang and Zuko try to go find the origins of firebending, yeah. and they were expecting to encounter ruins, but all the traps were live, and then they got into that one area that showed people doing these moves, yeah. and they realized that it was of a dragon form, like martial arts, which we yeah. know firebending is based off of kung fu which has dragon style exactly involved in it as more of a modern manifestation of some of those dragon influences you know talking about them coming down and especially in china them being like wise teachers yeah and again some stories of the origins of kung fu go back to some of these original purveyors of kung fu and the teachers are saying no you know these dragon beings came and they taught us how to do this to literally fight in these ways the yeah. the optimal ways to fight essentially yeah yeah and then so in that episode also so they see the the people doing the the forms and they do them and it's like triggering stones and it finally they get stuck in some sap or whatever but then they realize that um zuko's uncle who's the best cartoon uncle that i've ever everyone needs an uncle iroh i yeah, want an uncle iroh yeah, uncle iroh is awesome that he had been keeping the secret of this civilization because for those of you who have not seen avatar the last airbender I don't know who you are, but somebody has not. The Fire Nation is actively trying to destroy literally everything wholesome in the entire world. And so Iroh, instead of destroying this civilization, which their pyramids look very Central American, Aztec types of Mayan pyramids. And so they find out that his uncle lied to save this civilization from ruin, which works in their favor because then they get an opportunity to meet the dragons of which they thought had been hunted to extinction. Right. And so they go to the top of these steps and they're like, well, you're going to meet them. And these two dragons that look, honestly, I would have peed myself a little bit if I... (laughs) Yeah, they look pretty fierce. They look very fearsome, but then they did the the stances that they saw and learned like it unlocked the secret of firebending for them and they were expert master level firebenders after that and that makes me think of these stories and then of course we've like i said we've got kung fu and how like these downloads almost it's these teachings Mm -hmm. kind of made their way from these beings to humans yes thank you for joining us for part one of the dragon gods episode In part two, we explore the enigmatic presence of dragons in the Gnostic tradition and the startling possibility that some biblical figures might have actually been dragon-human hybrids. But that's not all. Join us as we explore the perplexing tale of the Jersey Devil and the tantalizing hints that suggest it might also be linked to dragons. We also delve into intriguing stories of how Native American and African tribes attempted to convey their encounters with these entities to early colonizers who only believed after experiencing on their own. As we close this chapter, a mind-boggling idea emerges. Could these same beings have been visiting and influencing some of the world's most significant civilizations throughout history? Tune in to uncover the unexpected connections that will reshape your understanding of the relationship between humans and dragon gods. Thank you for joining us on this transformative journey through the dragon's eye. 
Stay connected on Instagram and TikTok at Dragon's Eye Podcast for additional content, behind-the-scenes glimpses, and updates on upcoming episodes. If you're tuning in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other platforms, we would greatly appreciate it if you could take a moment to leave us a review. And if you're watching on YouTube, give this video a thumbs up, subscribe to our channel, and leave a comment.